You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Tyson Foods announced it would begin on-site vaccinations at its Iowa plant this week in Arkansas, where there is a large Pacific Island community working in the processing facilities there. The company announced it would offer four hours of pay as an enticement for its workers to get the shots. We first talked to Dr. Sheldon Rickland last summer. He's an associate professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and he operates out of a clinic that serves the Pacific Island community there in Springdale. The alarming number of fatal cases of COVID in the Marshallese community last year prompted an all-out effort to contain the virus. We reached out to Dr. Rickland this week to get an update. You know, surprisingly for our community, it's been good. It's been well received. You know, I think there's been a good uh, vaccine acceptance among the Marshallese here in the community. We've been active in trying to get them into events, mass vaccine events. So the consulate office, uh, along with some of the nonprofits and UMS uh, campus that we've been working with as well, and one of the local pharmacies, we've been working together in getting them in and booking them and actually schedule a time where everybody would come to get vaccinated. And that's been going really well. You know, I think when it opened up to 65 and up last week, we were concentrating before that on 70 plus age group. And, you know, I think we got a majority of them before they had opened up to the 65 plus uh, age group. And we're, we're still planning to do other vaccine events in the next upcoming weeks. And we're, again, we're working with UMS uh, as well as some of the community pharmacies to, to make sure that we get our um, members of our community vaccinated. I just saw that Tyson announced that they are actually doing, I think, on-site vaccinations in Iowa at their plants over there. Oh, I didn't hear about that, but I think that's great. I think, I mean, I think for you to get your employees, it's best that you get, you know, you get your vaccines at the workplace because that's where they're going to be. We've always been trying to make sure that it's easy access for them to get vaccinated if they're given the choice. You know, they're essential workers, so they should definitely get vaccinated. You know, they're poultry workers, but they're considered essential workers as well. So, you know, they, they, they're, they're higher up on the eligibility listing as far as who should be getting vaccines. And we are actually, you know, waiting for Johnson & Johnson's vaccines to uh, be available. I think here in Hawaii, it's this week, and then maybe some of the younger groups will be in line for that one. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's great that now we got three, you know, vaccines that will be available this coming week. You know, I think, you know, like it's always been said by, you know, Dr. Fauci and others, you know, whatever vaccine that's available for you to take, you know, if it's available, just take it get whatever is available there but I know at least for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine it's just a one-time dose uh, easy to store and you need to do you know take around doesn't have all these you know um, temperature requirements but you know for a population you're trying to reach to make sure that they get vaccinated and just one shot of vaccine I think that's a great thing but you think you've had a better time of it just because, you know, the community organized that task force and, and you're reaching out to the, the radio station there? I think it's been a combination of different things, you know, and, you know, part of it is definitely the, the, the task force and the community leaders. You know, we and, you know, working with many of the institutions that are, are on, on the ground and some of the healthcare services, just being able to collaborate with them better uh, and having that engage community leadership you know engages the community and as we were doing all these things with the with the testing you know we were also asking questions of those getting tested you know already you know if the vaccine is going to come and if it comes you know what's what's the best way to get it to you folks you know what's what's going to be most comfortable for you and you know we've been asking those questions along the way and as, as our Marshallese community leaders, the pastors, the consulate, the nonprofit organization, you know, um, leaders and some of the, the physicians are getting their vaccines, you know, we, we've been doing a lot of media on them, you know, kind of showing them getting the vaccine and asking them, why is it that you took the vaccine and what do you think your fellow members of the community should be doing and why is that? So we've been doing a lot of push on that to make sure that people understand it. You know, I think if when they hear it from somebody that looks like them, that sounds like them, 
and they're really comfortable doing it, and these are people that they respect in the community, then it's easier for them to accept that it is safe for them to get it, that the option of getting the vaccine is much safer than the option of getting infected. Had you seen pushback early on? Actually, to tell you the truth, not too much. I mean, it's been more misinformation than anything. You know, it's really not pushback. It's more, you know, is it true that, you know, you're going to get this, that you're going to get the, the, the virus from the vaccine? Is it true that it's going to change your DNA if you get it because it's an mRNA vaccine? So we've been pushing more on educating the public in language, in culturally and linguistically appropriate language that we've been talking to, to them about and We've been posting things on social media with, you know, Marshallese love Facebook, and we have all these different Facebook pages, and sharing that with them of these things that are coming up out of these institutions that are, you know, scientifically proven, and, you know, including myself and trying to educate folks on the radio as well as on Facebook-like format as well. And, and when did you get vaccinated? I got vaccinated. Oh, that's a good question. I <laughs> forgot. I got vaccinated in uh, January. And when I got vaccinated, of course, the TV camera was there taking a picture of my getting vaccinated. And, you know, they were sharing on a social post. And after I got vaccinated, you know, I also got on to Facebook, you know, which is very uncomfortable for me to get out there <laughs> in public. But I had to do it, you know, basically speaking in Marshallese and ex- telling people my my experience, you know, and then also 24 hours and 48 hours after that. Thankfully for me, I mean, the only thing that I really felt was just pain at the vaccination site. It got worse the next day, but then the following day after that, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Same with the second dose as well. So very minor uh, Very reaction. minor side effects for me, yes. Have you heard anything more about side effects in general from the Marshallese community? Some of them had completely no side effects from it. They felt fine after after that. Some of them actually felt very tired mm. uh, about the next day, but you know, really woke up the other day. You know, the second day after that, so um, all mild side effects for them so far that I've heard. Everybody's pleased that our numbers have been dropping. You know, here they're they're double digits, and uh, you know our our. Uh, infection rate is very low, you know, 1%. So I don't know what it's like there in Arkansas. It's been kind of following the same trend, actually. I think overall, you know, in the state, the numbers have gotten better. You know, I think we've, the positivity rate has fallen below 10% at this point. Among our Marshallese and Pacific Islanders, you know, back in July of 2020, our numbers were like 19% of the total cases in Northwest Arkansas. And that's or a population of only 2.4% of the region. And as of last month, on February 1st, our numbers had declined to 6.3% from that 19%, which is incredible. And I think part of it is with all these collaboration between these organizations and then engage community and this leadership. You know, we, we found out that, you know, we're not the expert, that it is the community that is the expert, that for us to serve them, we need to ask them, how is it that we should get the things done for you? So we've been really listening to them. And they, when they say, you know, we're more comfortable going to the consulate office, mm. we're more comfortable when we're with a group. Or, you know, so also we're also kind of looking into if, you know, if we should look into, you know, getting the vaccine to churches that way. And we're basically asking those kind of questions from them. Right. What works? What works for them, exactly. Because I think everybody's different. And then... Marshallese and any other Pacific Islanders or any other ethnic groups, you know, everybody has their own comfort level. Right. Well, that's good that the trend is is downward also, because I know there was just, you know, some concern because as our families move back and forth, you know, uh, some folks are are, are waiting to go home and cannot. And and that's just started now, you know, uh, with some of the island nations allowing uh, residents to come back. Uh, so that's a good thing. But, you know, we worry because the transmission, you know, someone comes from Arkansas, comes to Honolulu, you know, goes to the Marshall Islands. You don't want them to spread it. No, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, I've been quite impressed also with our own, you know, governments back home and how they've been handling this and not just with closing of the borders, but with their activity of trying to get people vaccinated back in the islands. You know, I hear that at least the Marshall Islands has been 
you know, going house to house as well, and their vaccine rates of people getting vaccinated is quite high in the region. So it's kind of good to see that and just kind of listening to how they're making sure that people, before they get home, they go through all these quarantine requirements, which, you know, for some it's, is inconvenient, yeah, but at humbug. the same time, it's definitely, you know, yeah, definitely it's safer for folks back home. So it's amazing that, you know, we're, we've been able to kind of do all that. Well, that, yeah, that's good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel as we come across this uh, one-year emergency situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's been amazing. a long year. That was Dr. Sheldon Rickman talking to us from Springdale, Arkansas. Uh, he was talking about the acceptance of the vaccines by the Marshallese community there. Dr. Rickland is one of two Marshallese doctors who trained at the University of Hawaii. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bike Marks Cafe, we'll talk to a couple of our legislative leaders to learn how they use technology. We'll learn how they rethought the legislative process and took public testimony online to make it easy to testify during this pandemic. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping nonprofits reduce their energy use during COVID-19 with energy-efficient lighting and HVAC systems. HawaiiEnergy.com slash four businesses. Been down so long, it looks like up to me. Or is it? That's the take on our Longview segment today. Our political analyst, Neil Milner, joins us this morning. Hi, Neil. Hello. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, so are things looking up? <laughs> well, um, up in some ways. There's, a, there's some good uh, writing that suggests why we should be optimistic. I mean, mm -hmm. some of it is. Some of it is obvious if you follow the news at all about more um, vaccines available. But there's been an interesting piece in a magazine called The Statute, The Daily Thing, which is a fact-based conservative magazine, which matches some of the other writing by people who don't get identified as conservatism, saying there are reasons to be optimistic, and the problem with not being optimistic is that it makes it harder to recover. It makes people less willing to get the vaccine. The information about the vaccine that's optimistic is one, and this is from David, from uh, Scott Linsicom and then David Leonhardt in the New York Times. Uh, one is that the vaccine is becoming more and more available, and the uh, President Biden's recent information about that. Secondly, it definitely seems effective and probably more effective than that, that those of us who have it are much less likely to be able to spread the virus somewhere else than was originally thought. It also reduces the seriousness of the disease and so on. So that's the vaccine side that, that people agree on, uh, mm -hmm. that more and more people are talking about. The economic side uh, is that we're, the economy is starting to recover. Jobs are starting to come back. Things look pretty good in some areas, like even manufacturing here. One of the interesting things is that um, there seems to be an increase in people starting new businesses. I would guess it has to do with two things, one of which is people who were laid off in some industries, like the tourist industry, trying to figure out another way to go. And the second thing is that they're taking over, to some extent, the infrastructure and the ashes of people who lost their businesses or went out of business in the other one. That's a real interesting one that uh, some folks have talked about uh, as, being, uh, as, as being optimistic. Okay, so that's the side of it. And as David Leonhardt says, we have to quit being vaccine alarmists because there's, the data suggests there's no reason for it. Um, 
and that by being vaccine alarmist, essentially you reduce the possibility of recovering from it. So all that goes along with this thing, like we can open schools more and the CDC has offered more guidelines and so on. So that's fine. There are two things to understand, one of which is that this is tremendously in a state of flux, that the virus could still surprise us, and because there is what I call a political flux, and that's, mm-hmm. that's really the, the second thing. You know, if you read the stuff about why we should be optimistic, you know, and I'm not talking about the kind of hoo-hahs, you know, uh, mask violates my freedom kind of stuff. I'm talking about people who look at this in a more serious way. It's presented in a kind of rational political world, you know, that here are the reasons that we should start being optimistic. Um, But in the real, this is still very much about politics. Science has become political. People listen to people who are members of their own political party. The states that are less, that are getting rid of mask mandates, for example, Texas and Mississippi, big surprise, they're Republican states. And so you, you have this kind of political overlay continuing and, they, and the, the kind of doubts about the importance of science continue to affect the dynamics here. So that if, even if there is an optimistic side, which I think there is, you always have to put it in the context of how, you know, of how people behave, not the least of which, of course, is that still, even if you have the vaccines available, um, to get people to take them is still somewhat of an issue and is still being fought about in other places. Right. I mean, there are still a lot of unknowns. You know, we just had the, the news about the third vaccine rollout, but then yesterday the Catholic Church was was saying, eh, not so fast, you know, these were uh, this is research out of stem cells. And the so- Johnson & Johnson yes. one, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. Are, you know, is that going to affect people's uh, acceptance of, of this vaccine, even though it is available? Well, I wish I could answer that. All we can say about this is that persuading people is both an art and a science, and it seems to have to do a lot with... The, the, the successful programs of getting people vaccinated seems to ha- seem to have a lot to do not with just making it available and making big places available, but a lot of grassroots work. Uh, West Virginia is a good example where um, they just decided, you know, you've got it's, it's a state that's isolated, a lot of poor people. You can't rely on the internet. We're going to do grassroots sort of thing. So the answer I'm going to give to that question is that the answer is unpredictable. The fact that I'm saying it's unpredictable reminds us that optimism or pessimism is very much mitigated by the way that people are actually going to behave in reaction to this. And the people like like uh, Scott Lincecum from in Dispatches and David Leonhardt in the New York Times are, are essentially trying to affect people's behavior by giving good, sound reasons why you can be more optimistic. But giving people good, sound reasons up to be optimistic through the media um, is not exactly a certain formula for success. You know, I guess if you think back that this month marks like a year, right, since uh, this whole emergency uh, uh, landed on our doorstep, uh, you know, I I guess I can't help think of of that cliche, too, right? Uh, You can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. So while you're in it, you're not really sure what you're in. (laughs) Well, and, and and there's really two issues there. One of us and I can feel it in myself. One side is that you're so used to being in the trees that you worry about going out into the forest, right? Um, that's, that's the one thing, that, and that has to do with becoming overly cautious. I, when I speak personally, I'm still a little reluctant to do things that I know are much safer to do now that I'm vaccinated. The other side, and I call this the Texas governor's side or the Florida governor's side, is, hey, it's the forest. You know, get out there. Do your stuff. Both of those things make the response to uh, COVID uh, more more problematical. And you notice we haven't even talked about the schools yet, and that's a whole separate issue. Because on the one hand, there is a lot more data and and um, political pressure to open schools, even in areas that you know have been very cautious about uh, about mandates. Um, and at the same time, there's still a lot of complexity and a lot of resistance. The CDC recent guidelines 
if you look at those guidelines, it suggests that county by county, if you're thinking about schools that should be open according to the CDC guidelines, there's probably a sixth of the counties in the country that should be open, that could be open full-time uh, in person, including three in Hawaii. And they only make up 4% of the population. And then the rest, a good portion of them can be open up hybrid and so on. The interesting thing, of course, is that even people who are in the field say that the CDC guidelines may be a little bit too strict. Mm. Uh, like six feet, it doesn't have to be six feet, three feet. But the point is that our response, the school response to COVID is like the response to virtually everything else in, in this pandemic. It's it's state and it's local, which means there's a lot of variation. Right. Okay. Well, I'm just going to say that I'm cautiously optimistic. How's that? Yeah, I, yeah, I am. Yes, <laughs> okay. I am too. I'm right. cautiously optimistic that people understood what I said today. Okay. All right. Thanks okay. so much, Take Neil. Care, Catherine. Yeah. Bye. That was Neil Milner, retired professor of political science. He joins us as our contributing editor with his segment, The Long View. Information about Hawaii inmates who have died due to COVID-19 has been slowly uh, uh, released. Uh, that's part of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Kevin Dayton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we are hearing some information somewhat slowly <laughs> as a public safety yeah. releases well, one it. One of the interesting things about what's been happening in the past year is that COVID-19 deaths are the only prisoner jail deaths of the, that the State Department of Public Safety has been publicly announcing. And that sort of ties into what has been a longstanding issue in Hawaii. Um, what we saw last year was that uh, prison and, and jail officials announced the nine deaths of inmates so far because of COVID-19, including two who are at Saguaro Correctional Center in Arizona and another seven at Halava Correctional Facility. What was extraordinary about that was the department doesn't normally announce when an inmate dies in their custody. Uh, a lot of people probably don't know that. Um, other states such as California, Nevada, Texas is one that you might not expect. They routinely announce when an inmate dies in state custody. That's just seen as, if you look at, look at the websites of those corrections departments, you'll see the death notices. And that's seen as being just sort of part of the responsibility of the state to keep the public informed You know, when someone in state custody dies. Uh, the, the census that the public should be told. That's not true in Hawaii. Um, here, the Department of Public Safety uh, does not announce each death. And in the past, there's been sort of this uh, curious process where if a reporter heard from a family member uh, or some such person, uh, perhaps a staff member, that there had been a death, and if that reporter called the prison system, they would very often confirm it and very often even identify the, the inmate that was involved, the inmate that passed away. Um, obviously, that's kind of a hit-and-miss system um, because the public never hears about many of those deaths, uh, the ones that actually occur. For example, we know last year that there were 16 inmates that died in the correctional system, but the department only announced two, and those two happened to be the two that were COVID-19 deaths. So it's interesting that the department has decided now that these deaths are worthy of announcing publicly, but all of the others, for whatever reason, um, have not been. Well, usually we hear like when an inmate has uh, committed suicide, you know, hung himself or herself in 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 the you know behind while they're behind bars. Uh, that you, information you might, has generally come out, and then we've asked right about that to verify. Correct. And and if you if you are Akamai enough to go and ask, if you hear about that from a family member or a staffer, you can go and ask, and they will very often confirm that. Um, unfortunately, what's been happening in recent months is. We, we appear to be going in the wrong direction. Uh, Department of Public Safety Director Max Otani told lawmakers just last month that the state attorney general's office has advise, advised his department to stop releasing the names of inmates who die in custody because that might be a violation of the federal law that's known as HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And that, that, that safeguards patient privacy. You know, it's an important law, but it's an unusual application of it here. Um, this whole dispute over making known what happens in, in cases of inmate deaths is kind of, it's not new. It's been going on for some time now. And in 2019, 
some reformers lobbied the legislature for a new law that's called Act 234. That required prison officials to file death notices with the governor and pass those, and the governor's office would pass those on to the legislature. Now, for a time, the legislature was releasing those reports publicly, but then the prison system put a stop to that. They, they, they put this announcement at the bottom of each report saying that it, essentially that it would be a violation of HIPAA to release this to anyone other than the governor and the legislature. So then we do not have access to the reports that are filed under Act 234, and we, we end up with even less information. One of the reasons this comes up now is that, that the legislature is now considering House Bill 796 to try to amend that law to see if there isn't a way to you know, increase the, the amount of information that is actually provided to the public uh, right, under Act 234. Right, because, I mean, obviously, if, if there's a situation that needs to be investigated, uh, that concerns the welfare of the inmates, you would want to know. But without information, uh, that's hard to do. Correct. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, we've been talking with uh, reporter Kevin Dayton uh, with today's Reality Check. Uh, check out his stories on uh, civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. Join HPR Saturday, March 13th for a virtual concert with local quartet Mango Season. It's an evening celebrating the music of the Hawaiian Renaissance with songs written by some of Hawaii's most loved artists. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton studio in your own living room. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Arts exhibition O Kalani, featuring works by contemporary Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele, extended through April 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. The Netflix original Finding Ohana debuted a little more than a month ago and is now available in Olelo, Hawaii, with Hawaiian subtitles, that is. Any Netflix movie or television show can now be captioned in the Hawaiian language thanks to a platform called Olelo Fix. HBR's Ku'ube Hirishi joins us with more. Hi. Good morning, Catherine. Olelo Fix, this is something I've been wanting to do a story on for quite some time. It is this crowdsourcing translation technology where anyone, all these language learners, anyone who knows Hawaiian language or who is learning, can take part in captioning Netflix movies or television shows. So apparently this falls under the use for, for educational purposes of Netflix movies or television shows or documentaries can be translated, and it's all using this particular technology called Olelloflix. Uh, have you heard of Olelloflix? Uh, yes, and it, it, so it's really interesting, you know, because, you know, we're getting the folks who are learning Hawaiian and who are comfortable with technology, growing up with technology, you know, to exactly. use this. The next generation, right? So this, this growing demand for Hawaiian language resources for language learners has really been the, the motivating factor in bringing about this technology. So what it is, is it's actually a, an extension on Chrome browsers. The tech geeks out there, anyone who has a Chrome browser can install this extension, and it works as somewhat of a pop-up blocker. We all know those ad blockers that we have. So it actually blocks the subtitles on Netflix movies and TV shows and replaces them with these uh, Olelo Hawaii captions. So right now, the Netflix movie, as you mentioned, Finding Ohana is being translated, and Olelo Flix pioneer Kalani Bright admits at first he wasn't certain that would be a good fit. Here's Bright. When it came down to like, oh my God, finding Ohana, okay, okay, what is it? Did they fully misrepresent our culture like every other movie? Okay, we gotta watch it. So then as soon as it came out, I watched it and I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty good. 
You couldn't take a little moment to teach these kids? Oh, little Hawaii? Of course not. Oh, We're living Hawaii. in New York. Just small kind of little Hawaii. That's all Come I was on. asking you. It's raining. Let's go. What about you, boo? You dance a little? You do anything like that? It, it's got like wildfire, like people... We're, we're like, have you seen Finding Ohana? And it's like, okay, this, this, is our, this is our jam. Jam, as in Olelo Jam. So these are these community events where Olelo Hawaii speakers of all ages uh, and proficiencies actually gather to add Hawaiian captions all at the same time to a particular a Netflix movie or TV show. And so Finding Ohana was the Olelo Jam for the month of February was Hawaiian Language Month. Oh, it's great. You know, it's just so fun to see the learners engaged. Right, right. And it's challenging, though, too, because you've got learners of all ages. You've got kids as young as, you know, four or five fluent and able to pretty much take those uh, adults who are still learning to task in captioning. And so a way that Wright has sort of organized things to allow for language learning to happen is in these Olelo jams, he'll pair a fluent speaker with a less skilled speaker so that they can caption together and sort of go through learning the language, something Bright himself has actually started to learn because he wasn't a fluent speaker. Mm. He thought he was a little, you know, had the proficiency. And when it came down to being with other fluent speakers up at UH and whatnot, uh, he got to learn a lot. So it's, it's been interesting to watch this evolve. Bright has actually got a lot of community feedback about these jams sort of creating a safe space for learning, right, for language learning. And that's the way he actually uh, set it up. It's great. It's kind of anonymous. Nobody knows who put whatever captions in there unless you want to make yourself known. So really you're watching a movie that's the creation of many people. There's help features. There's like you can click on any word and you can it, it'll search it on Behe Behe Wiki. Uh, and so you can learn, and then there's other, like, like grammatical patterns and stuff you can see. Right, did say that they're working to add a feature where captions that are later corrected for grammar or vocabulary, that those corrections are actually sent to the original translator to facilitate that, that language learning. Uh, but aside from finding Ohana, there are at least another 20 projects open for translation uh, with Olelo Flicks, including Back to the Future, uh, Breaking Bad, and Chasing Carl, just to, to name a few. So this is really kind of a trial and error thing, right? They, they roll it out, see how it works, and then they tweak it. Yes, and there have been tweaks already. Uh, according to Bright, they came up with the technology as early as 2009 and took a while to kind of get it out to the masses. And as we mentioned earlier, that idea of putting together the fluent speakers and the new speakers was something they had learned along the way that could kind of help facilitate the captioning, I guess, efficiency. <laughs> but uh, O Little Flicks has been one of Bright's uh, passion projects, something Bright does on the side uh, as the founder and CEO of Mana Studios. But this is a nonprofit aiming to empower Hawaiians to reclaim that, that digital space by normalizing Olalo Hawaii. Here's Bright. Mana Studios is an idea that I've had in my head forever. I started when I was a young kid programming. I was about eight years old and 41 now. And so I went to school in San Diego at the Art Institute of San Diego, California. And I, I got told by an instructor that if I kept doing things, about Hawaiian stuff that would never get a job. That was not true at all. The Mana Studio started sometime around 2008. It, it was this space that Hawaiian creative media could exist. Over time, it's developed into this idea of a platform for renormalizing Olelo Hawaii in books, so interactive books, in videos, like Netflix movies or other kind of original content. That's great that he didn't, you know, take that... Uh... No for an answer. <laughs> exactly, and that's that enterprising side of what is going on here. But Bright, he says that uh, the next step for Olelo Flix is actually to enter the world of dubbing, <laughs> which he mm. says is, is actually very promising in terms of the new technology available. But uh, the group is still polishing its captions on finding Ohana. They're actually going to hold another Olelo Jam uh, this Friday virtually for anyone who would like to jump in and and contribute to this sort of growing world of Hawaiian language caption. 
Well, that's great because if you can get uh, the users, you know, excited about a project and then sneak in the learning, <laughs> you know, through those yep. captions, I mean, what a great idea. Right, and these movies can then be used in classrooms or with, you know, any language learning opportunity really for people to be exposed to Hawaiian language, but in sort of their normal Netflix world. Yeah, no, it's great, and it's great that they, you know, like they roll it out and see how it works, tweak it, you know, if it doesn't quite work the way they want, but it's a learning process. Exactly, and we should see more tweaks in this dubbing process as well. Okay, all right, well, thanks, Kuwabe. We have been hearing from Kuve Hiraishi. Find her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Elepayo, it's a street name in Kahala here on Oahu, but it's also the name of a native bird. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Elepayo. Elepayo are a native species of flycatcher, and as their name suggests, they spend a good amount of their time catching flies and other insects on the wing. There are different species of Elepayo on Kauai, Oahu, and Hawaii Islands, but for unknown reasons, they never seem to have made it to Maui Nui. Elepayo seem to have a natural resistance to mosquito-transmitted disease, but are declining on Oahu, likely due more to habitat loss and introduced predators like rats. On Oahu, Elepayo are a federally endangered species, but they seem to be doing okay on the other islands. Elepayo are about four inches tall, are brown, white, and black, short black bills and distinctive whiskers that seem to help them catch their food and make them particularly cute. They're not as colorful as other Hawaiian birds, but they more than make up for it with their personality. Elipayo seem more inquisitive and curious than other native forest birds, and will often follow hikers as they walk through their territories in the forest. Like many other Hawaiian birds, Elipayo are named after the sound they make. They are considered a kinolau, or physical manifestation, of the canoe-building goddess Lea, and if an elipayo appeared and began foraging at a chosen koa log, the canoe-builders would take it as a sign that the wood was not fit for a canoe. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Mono Minute, HPR's latest podcast, now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at friendsofhakalauforest.org. behind the latest addition to Waikiki, a gallery and events room, and a reminder of the rich host culture. The Music Hall of Fame and Nalima Mili Hulu Noeau welcome you to experience a new venue to pay homage to Native Hawaiian music and culture and its influence over time. We talked to Kumuhulu Blankia, who grew up in the Beachwalk area and who is proud to share and showcase his heritage at the Royal Room. Fame and Nalima Mili Hulu Noyao welcomed you to experience a new venue to pay homage to Native Hawaiian music and culture and its influence over time. We talked to Kumahula Blankia, who grew up in the Beachwalk area and who was proud to share and showcase his heritage at the Royal Room. The Royal Room is a combination of two wonderful cultural attributes of the Hawaiian culture. One happens to be mele, which is the music of Hawaii. And the other happens to be hulu, which is the feather-making 
inspire ancient people. And both of them are very much a part of the symbolism of what royalty represents. We know that when it comes to chief, chiefesses, kings and queens, we know that's universal in a sense for many cultures around the world. And here in Hawaii, name, our ancient birds played a significant role in our compositions, but they've also played a significant role in our royalty in terms of its jewelry and the quality of jewelry. And making these beautiful adornments with feathers of our birds were a very significant part of how you know, birds are of the sky, and Hawaiians feel that with royalty, we are so much a part of the heavens. And so the birds became a very significant part of poetry and part of that legacy and esteemed value of our birds and how they represent our kings, ahuula, their capes, their helmets, things of that sort. Then you have the mele, right, where we take our ancient texts and we have put them to just beautiful compositions of music and where birds are also celebrated in a lot of our ancient past. Uh, music is also a very big part of our culture in the renaissance of the late 70s into the 80s. And so people like the late Gabby Pops, Pahinui, Afrila Paka, Lina Machado, people of that sort, Charles E. King, um, have all made tremendous contributions to our culture. So with the combined efforts of Hawaii Music Hall of Fame and Namili Huluno Eao. Hawaii Music Hall of Fame is run by President Tony Lee. Namili Huluno Eao is a generation of three incredible women of, uh, of a grandmother, a mother, and now uh, one of their uh, children now taking over. Her name is Mele Kahalipuna Chan. So they are the two uh, people that are running uh, the Royal Room at the Wahipi 12 Plaza. And as we acknowledge the contribution in the history of music and arts. It's a source of pride because our ali'i composed mele, and a lot of those songs are played today. Yeah, there's this stereotype mentality about Waikiki, first of all, right, that it's very marketable, you know, very tourism, you know, un-Hawaiian, but to be honest, that's where it really starts, and Waikiki was a place where our kings and queens would always go. They had summer homes there. And it was always Hawaiian, and it continues to be Hawaiian. So people like myself, who, are, who is a cultural advisor, born and raised in Waikiki, the youngest of nine children, we all worked and played in Waikiki. And it's important to be mindful that people like myself who grew up in Waikiki, that it is a place for Hawaiians. It is a place of culture, of education, and to be hands-on with the things that we love that are purely Hawaiian. And I think Audrey Resorts and the Waikiki Truck is doing a wonderful job by making sure that the host culture is alive and well in Waikiki. It's very critical that we have a place like this where people can come and learn and be educated, and not by the glitz and the glamour of Waikiki, but truly the essence of who we are as a culture. Because once you get the real essence of who we are as a people, that's where the appreciation is where you're in Waikiki, when you can see other things that might not be as Hawaiian as you would like to experience it. And so the Royal Room really brings about that kind of interaction where we can really, really educate people. And then they become long-term loyal people that perhaps we can stimulate them to, to research further, you know, once they leave our islands and go home. And hopefully we've made an impact on them and they'll continue to understand our culture well. And I think, too, it's a wonderful opportunity to draw our residents down there to that spot. I mean, I walk Waikiki all the time, and I never tire of it. It's just nice to know the history. You know, there's the music industry and, and the extent of our reach and our influence on music, you know, worldwide. You know, whether it's strings or, or hula or ukulele. I mean, you know, people like Taimani Gardner, right? She was discovered on the streets of Waikiki uh, by Don Ho's folks. So... It's just wonderful, rich history that we have to offer. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. You know, our our ancient people of our kupuna of the past, you know, they really set some incredible foundations for us. They laid these foundation stones so that we could pick them up, understand them, comprehend them, have the compassion for it, and then and to put it forth with everyone that travels here to from all walks of life that come, that it is a kuleana, it's a responsibility that we have constantly every day to make sure that we are teaching and educating our visitors of truly our rich culture. Um, you know, we, we live in a 21st century where everything is now technically 
mentally, intellectually driven to the point where sometimes the heart, the natural things, the, the things that we all grew up with without this technology, you know, we're giving up some of that now and some of those stimulants. And it's important for us to rebound on those and make sure that they are in place for many more generations to come so that um, we don't forget uh, our natural instincts and what is truly spiritual because, you know, there was a time when we didn't have all these things. You know, and we were very creative back then as well. So finding that bridging, I believe the Royal Room at the Waikiki Beach Walk will definitely uh, provide that kind of insight so that we can continue with this bridging. Now, there has been a lot of effort toward trying to get a museum of dance and music. You know, they were talking about the convention center. But until something like that happens, at least we have this spot then on Beach Walk. Yeah, you know... Surprised you bring that up. Anyway, that's a long subject matter in itself, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. But 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 it's true. You know, we have different um, facets of our culture, private and in the public sector, as well as corporate, that have all of these creative ideas about a cultural center and a, and a hula cultural center and things of that sort. And yeah, and as we wait for these things to come about, what we are trying to do right now is find those bridges with our nonprofits and with our private sector cultural organizations because it's better together than to be alone in terms of being supportive in a much greater, greater level. And so that's why the this partnership with Hawaii Music Hall of Fame, Namili Hulu no Eel, along with Outrigger Resorts and the Waikiki Beach Walk, that's an important part of, of gaining strength and gaining momentum and having fortitude and helping our organizations to stay afloat, to stay alive and to perpetuate and preserve and to keep it going because without that kind of partnership or kukua or help, um, we stand not to be an example for anyone else. Mm-hmm. So it's an example um, that Outrigger Resort and Waikiki Beach Walk is putting forth by saying this is important. This is important for Waikiki. It's important for Honolulu, and it's important for the state of Hawaii that uh, we exemplify uh, these kinds of partnerships that are terribly needed, more so now than ever before. Yeah, so this is a nice little spark in that corner of Waikiki. It it, it really is, and you know uh, we're hoping that that it's in perpetuity. Uh, you know, Waikiki is, uh, you know, square footage in Waikiki is a whole lot of money, <laughs> and so what Outrigger Resorts has done and the Waikiki Truck has done is incredible. I mean, to allow this to to flourish, to have it thrive and to live and to uh, to represent the beauty of our culture, where Waikiki was a place where our kings and queens always went to. And we just need to continue that perpetuation. And uh, and we're off to a good start, you know, and, and I think um, it'll prove beneficial uh, for our tourism as well as for our locals as we head into the summer months. And maybe more restrictions will, be, will, will change for the better, and more people will be able to come out and see what it is we're trying to do. And, um, and I think that's what we are... Um, we are gaining in terms of optimism uh, for our future. And so as far as the workshops that might be conducted, can you talk about that? Yeah, so from the side of Hawaii Music Hall of Fame, if you can think, uh, if people go to the website, you'll see all these incredible musicians and artists of the past and of the present, George Cool, Greg Sardina, Aaron Mahi. I mean, every single musician you, you can think of, the workshops that we can do online, on YouTube, on Zoom, will be hopefully um, incorporated as we get through the, the different tiers, right? So we're hoping that by spring and by summer, we'll be having this kind of educational classes through melee, through composition, through poetry, the different instruments. How did we come up with the Hawaiian trio? Where did the ukulele come from? We kind of know, but there's different kind of stories we can tell uh, about that. Chris Kamaka of Kamaka Ukulele. People of, of that sort will be a part of this wonderful process. Then you have Nambili Hulu no Eel, Melekahale Puna Chan, who does the Lehulu workshops in understanding our, our native birds, understanding what the feathers were used for, the different colors of our birds, their native species in terms of way they, way, where these birds dwell. You know, what did they mean to our royalty? While all along you're sitting there on a table with mele as a kumu, as a source of the, of the hulu, is teaching you how to weave these beautiful feathers into a croissage or something for your hair or a wristlet. By the end of that class, whether it's an hour or two hours, you've made this incredible gift that you can take home with you. The same applies to our music. It's universal. We know music is a universal language. Hawaiian music has done spiritual things and healing 
world. So we hope to bring that hybrid or blended, however we can, through YouTube, Zoom, um, live stream, even in person, um, starting in spring through the summer, and uh, all those classes will be added. It'll be an added bonus to all of our live com uh, composers and artists who are definitely um, uh, uh, musicians and artists who continue the works of our legendary composers of old. Well, it, it is a, a kind of a little uh, hope that I have to be able to make a feather lay one day, and hopefully I can be uh, uh, lucky enough to uh, attend one of those workshops or one of those classes. Yeah, you know, Emile comes from a, uh, from Auntie, the late Auntie Mary Luke Kikueva, her grandmother, then her mom, Paulette Kahalipuna, and now Mele Kahalipuna Chan. We call them Mandava uh, Wahine, the powers of these three women who were, you know, the, the forefront of keeping this and preserving this beautiful handwork of, of feather making that has gone global. Uh, they have taught people from all over the world. So to bring that to Waikiki into focus is really tremendous uh, for her, for her family, as well as for Hawaiian Music Hall of Fame to bring that into focus when music is a universal language. We've got Hawaiians all over the world to yeah. play Hawaiian music, and, and they want to make sure that they have a connection and a link. So um, we got the best of two worlds, our music and, and the beautiful art of, of feather making. And you know, I'm proud of it, that I can be a part of it as the cultural advisor and the entertainment director at Waikiki Beach Walk, but to Outrigger Resorts and what they're mm -hmm. doing, it, it is a wonderful project that we have put forth. That was Kumahula Blankia talking about Mele and Hulu at the Royal Room, which had a soft opening on uh, Beach Walk there in Waikiki. Uh, we should say that that area is where uh, Blankia was born and raised and where his parents entertain and work sharing Hawaiian culture. <laughs> Well, we are all pow for the day, but up tomorrow, the state labor director answers some of the questions about unemployment claims that our listeners sent in. Got a story idea for us? Leave us your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>